Hello and welcome to this podcast on Raynaud Syndrome. My name is Mal Burke. I am the Patient Public Engagement Programme Director for BIRD. In this first episode, I'm joined by Dr Victoria Flower, who is a consultant rheumatologist at the Royal National Hospital for Rheumatic Diseases in Bath. And we're going to talk through the differences between primary Raynaud's and secondary Raynaud's and the kinds of additional symptoms that might flag to your GP or your rheumatologist that there's something else going on. Hello, Victoria. Hi, Mel. How are you? Really good, thanks. It's good to see you again. So thanks for coming along to to do another podcast series with us. No problem at all. So today we're going to be talking about Raynaud's syndrome. Um, and I thought maybe we could start with a little bit of background about it and perhaps explain why it's sometimes referred to as Raynaud's phenomenon. Yeah. So it's a really curious term. So why, why is that used? Well, it's, it's sort of along the lines of... Um... Uh, it probably starts in the fact that actually we use Raynaud's phenomenon as quite a broad term. Um, it's It kind of encompasses lots of different diagnoses, but with the same sort of symptoms. So traditionally, Raynaud's phenomenon is a condition where patients have hypersensitivity to cold. So if I went out in very cold, minus 30 temperatures with no gloves on, nothing to keep me warm. It would be quite normal that my blood vessels would clamp down in my fingers and toes to try and preserve my, my body heat and keep my blood flow more in the kind of central parts of my body to keep my core body temperature up. And that'd be quite a normal response. But in patients with Raynaud's, that then happens at much warmer temperatures and sometimes it's just when they're at normal room temperature and that's because their uh, blood vessels are kind of hypersensitive and they're overreacting to changes in temperature. Oh that makes sense so anybody can get the phenomenon they might just get it once or twice but then people with the syndrome it's happening more frequently and not just because of those triggers. Potentially, although generally speaking, we talk about Raynaud's phenomenon rather than Raynaud's syndrome as a diagnosis. Okay. So patients who are coming into clinic with a, a, a sort of formal diagnosis, we'd refer to it as Raynaud's phenomenon. But then within those that sort of group of symptoms where, where they get um, changes in blood flow and changes in colour in their fingers, they can then, uh, that their actual reason behind that can be very different. So that term Raynaud's phenomenon is really just referring to the pattern of symptoms. It's not talking about the underlying diagnosis and what's driving that. Right. Okay. And are there other areas that these this can affect then, as well as the, we, we commonly, we know about the fingers going white and numb. So where else can it affect? So it can affect most of your peripheries, to be honest. So kind of fingers are the classical one, as you said, toes as well, uh, tip of the nose, ears, and for lots of people, particularly women, nipples as well. Right. That must be quite painful then. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's and it's very variable between patients. So some patients will just get fingers involved. Some patients will have their toes more involved than their fingers, but uh, not everybody gets all of those areas involved. Mm. So in essence, is this something that people can largely self-manage themselves, like if they dress warmer and they dress to sort of prevent those kinds of symptoms happening? Yeah, absolutely. And lots of patients will have very varied symptoms. So some people will manage their Raynaud's very well and they never actually end up in the doctor's office because they just 
know what their symptoms are, they know what their triggers are, and they either avoid those triggers or they do things to try and mitigate them. Um, and then some people have very severe Raynaud's and they need much more support and, and medication to try and help with their symptoms. But you're absolutely right, you alluded to the fact that if you can try and keep warm, then, uh, then that can certainly help with Raynaud symptoms. And that's keeping your peripheries warm, which seems like an obvious thing to say. So wearing gloves, thick socks, that sort of thing, but actually also keeping your core body temperature warm helps keep your fingers and toes warm as well. So sometimes in the cooler months, like the sort of spring and, and autumn, when it's not quite cold enough for a full thick jacket, actually wearing a body warmer or something on your, on your core can help keep your fingers warm too. Yeah, that makes sense. And do we know much about whether or not it affects more men than women? Is there an age kind of prone to this or is it just quite broad? Yeah, absolutely. So um, females are much more likely to get Raynaud's. Um, it's quite uncommon in men if it's a primary condition where the problem is what we call primary Raynaud's and there isn't an underlying reason behind that, so to speak. Uh, and certainly in some studies, um, it's suggested that maybe up to 30% of the female population might experience Raynaud symptoms. That varies depending on which country you're in and what the, the normal climate is. So in colder countries, it tends to be a higher prevalence and in, in warmer countries, it tends to be much lower. Yeah, I was going to ask that. I mean, it makes makes complete logical sense to think that it could happen more frequently in a much colder climate. So, yeah. And you asked me about age differences. Mm. Certainly the vast majority of people who develop primary Raynaud's where it's um, uh, there isn't a kind of background reason for it happening, if you like, or a secondary reason. Most of those people will experience their first Raynaud's symptoms before the age of 35. So usually it's somewhere between your late teens uh, and kind of early 30s that you might develop Raynaud's for the first time anything beyond the age of 35 is a little bit more of a, a question mark and that raises the possibility that there's something else driving that condition. So it's not something that you see frequently in children then or, or very young teenagers say? No and certainly if it, if it comes on for the first time below the age of 12 actually that would be another little flag to say perhaps there's something else driving this and it might need a little bit more investigation. Mm. And we talked about there's sort of two classifications of Raynaud. So there's the primary, which is we talked about the the common symptoms that, that a lot of people can experience. What other signs of that it might be secondary then? What makes it a secondary diagnosis? Well, number one in my mind is that it's come on later in life. So it's mm. like sort of after the age of 35, certainly after the age of 40, if you've never had Raynaud's before that point and suddenly you have Raynaud's, that's uh, uh, something to pay attention to. And then if there's other symptoms associated with it as well, and particularly from my point of view as a rheumatologist, the kind of conditions we think about are connective tissue diseases or autoimmune diseases. Mm. It might be patients who have also got things like skin rashes, uh, joint symptoms, uh, lots of fatigue, mouth ulcers, uh, difficulty swallowing sometimes, lots of other things that can make you think that they might have a, a secondary process that's going on. But actually, it's, it's not about one single symptom, it's about the whole package. Mm, so it's bundling up with other things that have begun to happen all around the sort of same time or over, over a time. Is it something that tends to come on quite quickly or is it something that can develop quite slowly so you wouldn't necessarily notice it? 
I think that, that depends on lots of factors, actually. Mm. So partly the time of year. Um, so I do have patients who, for example, have said they've always had a bit of a tendency to rain nodes, but they only really noticed it when they moved from their warm country to the UK. Um, and so that sort of brought the symptoms out much more. And the devil's in the detail, really, in terms of the history and, and, and what's made that change and what else happened around that. Um, but for some people, if it's particularly driven by an autoimmune condition, um, those symptoms can come on quite quickly and, and suddenly out of the blue rather than building up slowly. Is this being kind of initially caught as, a, as flags in, in sort of a normal doctor appointment, GP surgery? So I think GPs are getting better at recognising that, actually. And we do lots of education with GPs, uh, particularly in Bath. So we usually do a, um, an annual uh, teaching session. And it's one of the sorts of things that comes up for, uh, for GPs to recognise that uh, Raynaud's isn't always a straightforward condition. And sometimes there might be a secondary cause behind it. So lots of GPs will do uh, ANA testing, which is autoantibody testing on blood tests to see if there might be an underlying autoimmune condition and that if that patient might need to see a rheumatologist so so the diagnosis can only really come from being seen by a rheumatologist then so a diagnosis of Raynaud's can be made by any clinician really is about the pattern of symptoms but if you're trying to establish whether or not there might be a secondary condition causing that, it's often helpful to see a rheumatologist. That doesn't mean that everybody with Raynaud's has to see a rheumatologist, but if there are other symptoms in the background um, or suspicions, then uh, GPs will quite often refer to rheumatology, partly to say, you know, is there anything else driving this? But also if they have troublesome Raynaud's, then to help manage it as well. Mm, and maybe to look at things like do more specialist tests. So we talk about... Um, what kinds of tests and measurements are taken when someone sees a rheumatologist? Yeah, so um, if a patient comes to see me uh, about their Raynaud's symptoms, assuming that um, they're giving classical symptoms of Raynaud's, and that would be things like very cold fingers with colour change, and it might be single colour change where they just become very, very white. Uh, sometimes it might be more than one colour change, which might involve white, red or blue. Um, and uh, and sometimes it's all three of those colours. But if they're giving a classical story of Raynaud's, actually, I don't have to go on to do any more tests to confirm that that's Raynaud's. I can make that based on the clinical diagnosis. In Bath, we do have lots of extra tests we can do, but they're not available everywhere, and, and you don't have to have them to make that diagnosis. Mm. So the kind of tests that we can do uh, in Bath are cold water tests. So um, it doesn't sound that cold, but... <laughs> ask the patients to put their hands in a bucket of water uh, that's about 15 degrees so it feels quite cool and that should be enough to stimulate the patient to have a Raynaud's attack if they're going to have one um, and then what we do is we watch their hands re-warm with a thermal imaging camera and there's various calculations we can do about what temperature the fingers were compared with the back of the hand as to whether that constitutes Raynaud's phenomenon. And there are some drawbacks with that. So it's, you know, it's not always as clear cut and you do have to do a little bit of interpretation. Uh, but that's the kind of thing we can do to really demonstrate that someone's got Raynaud's phenomenon. In what circumstances would you really want to use those kinds of tests? Well, sometimes it can be unclear from the story that the patient tells us as to whether they do have definite Raynaud's or not. And actually, some people can have what we'd refer to as kind of cold intolerance rather than true Raynaud's. So they're not necessarily having um, 
an attack where their blood vessels clamp down into in response to cold it's more that they're feeling the effects of cold if you see what I mean mm. the cold water test and the thermal imaging camera can really give us an idea as to whether they are having a really big change in blood flow and therefore temperature in their fingers which would be Raynaud's phenomenon or if actually they're just feeling lots of symptoms in relation to cold exposure which is more of a cold intolerance Oh, yeah, I think it's important to clarify just because people might be wondering why they haven't had the thermal imaging. So if it's a clear cut case, they don't need it is essentially the message. Yeah. So it's mostly mostly based on a clinical diagnosis from the story that's that's told and quite often photographs. So people will take photographs of their hands when they're having an attack. And actually, that's usually really helpful. Yeah, it's quite useful, isn't it, to be able to sort of like self diarize any episodes of something like that going on. So are there any main health risks to people who have Raynaud's? We mentioned that to have the secondary diagnosis, it means there's other things going on. So are there other health risks involved here? Uh, yeah, potentially. Um, it very much depends on, on that individual. Um, but if, for example, that person has Raynaud symptoms because it's part of another condition, such as an autoimmune condition, then the bigger picture needs to be considered in terms of what does that condition mean for that patient, um, which bits of the body does it affect, and what sort of treatment does that need. Actually, when it comes to the Raynaud's symptoms specifically, whether it's primary Raynaud's, secondary Raynaud's or not, actually we treat the Raynaud's very similarly. It's more about have they got a background condition that we also need to consider other medications for, potentially screening investigations, monitoring, that sort of thing. And can this be quite a debilitating condition for people to have? Does it affect, you know, affect their life in any way? Sort of, I was thinking about particularly with things like it could affect someone's working occupation. Absolutely. So some people, their Raynaud's will get triggered just by the air conditioning in the office. Mm. And so when they're sat at their desk and they're trying to do, you know, typing work um, and their fingers are freezing and they've, they've lost their sort of hand function because of it, um, then it, they can find that very difficult. So it, it depends on what the trigger is for that patient. But um, uh, yes, it, it can certainly affect their hand function. Yeah. And if they were doing something like working outside or they were gardening or something, it, it could make things quite difficult, couldn't it, if you keep suffering from that kind of symptom? Absolutely. And for some people, their Raynaud's affects them once a week, only in the winter. And for some people, even during the summer, they can continue to get symptoms regularly throughout the day so um again depends on what that person is experiencing but if you're having you know cold attacks all the time that you know reduces your hand function gives you pain during that period of time potentially then it can have a big impact on their day-to-day -day activities and all the stuff we take for granted sure we talked about things that people can obviously the obvious things that people can do to help themselves like wrapping up and wearing gloves and things like that it's not always so easy um, are there other things they they can do are there other lifestyle choices they can make that would help reduce symptoms or absolutely yeah so um smoking's the big one um so we we always want patients to stop smoking if, if they do smoke already but unfortunately um the nicotine in in cigarettes encourages the blood vessels to clamp down so you're sort of exacerbating the problem that's already there um, if you have Raynaud's and you're a smoker so the biggest thing that patients can do for themselves is to stop smoking and that could have some kind of impact on the amount of times they have these symptoms then absolutely mm -hmm. uh, but in addition to that 
if you imagine that the Raynaud's attack that's happening where the blood vessels clamp down in response to cold um, or emotional stress for that matter, we've not mentioned that, but that can certainly be a trigger um, too, but that's happening in the smaller blood vessels. If someone is a smoker, then the exposure to the smoking history encourages those small blood vessels to clamp down. But in addition to that, you're also increasing the more kind of traditional problems in the blood vessels where you can get furring of the larger arteries. And if you can imagine if you've got hypersensitive, tiny blood vessels, but you've also got the larger ones being furred up and a bit more clogged, then your blood flow is going to be really, uh, really interrupted. So stopping smoking is a really big one. Mm. What else can come with secondary Raynaud's? So we've mentioned the autoimmune type processes that can cause mm. as part of those conditions, but there are lots of other things that can cause it as well. Um, so smoking uh, is, is one factor, but there are also other conditions like hand-arm vibration syndrome, which is when people have used a lot of vibrating tools as part of their job, perhaps, um, uh, and that can cause some damage to the lining of the um, blood vessels and the, the nerve fibers that control those and, and so how they respond to cold. Okay, and I was gonna ask about stress. You mentioned it just now and whether or not it's the condition that causes the stress in terms of the symptoms and, and it being uncomfortable and painful or is the stress can cause a condition or is it a little bit of both? So I guess it can be a bit of both. So uh, the main thing that we think about in terms of um, Raynaud's symptoms would be cold. That would come to most people's mind. But actually, emotional stress can certainly trigger individual attacks as well. And for some people, that's a bigger factor than others. Mm. Um, but certainly the cold is the predominant uh, trigger that tends to cause cause problems. But then, as you quite rightly said, if people are having lots of attacks, it can be quite stressful in itself and, and keep firing the loop round. Um, and it's more about managing those symptoms, depending on what trigger is for that person. Mm, I was thinking about if it's secondary Raynaud's and there's these autoimmune type extra symptoms like fatigue and then not being able to sleep, that that can then make you more stressed and that could then maybe make you have more attacks is, is that the kind of cycle that's an interesting thought um as far as i'm aware i don't think there have been any studies to specifically look at sleep linked with Raynaud symptoms but it's an interesting thought mm -hmm. certainly all aspects of our lives contribute to stress don't they uh, and so it's it's very rarely going to be one individual uh, problem that's contributing to stress for that person but actually quite a lot of people will find if stress is a trigger for them, that actually they can see that relationship. So they might be having a stressful conversation or a stressful moment at work. And actually the Raynaud's attack comes on very quickly in relation to that. So they can usually link it quite quickly um, in a sort of temporal way. Mm. So when somebody's had their diagnosis, they've been to see a rheumatologist and it's clear that they have secondary Raynaud's, do they continue to see a rheumatologist or they go back to their GP? will partly depend on the reason behind the secondary cause, if you see what I mean. Mm. Something like uh, hand-arm vibration syndrome or um, perhaps thoracic outlet syndrome, um, something like that, then there might be different people that need to manage that problem um, or help them manage that problem. So, for example, thoracic outlet syndrome, actually, it might be better that they're under a um, a, a type of surgeon, uh, sometimes that's a vascular surgeon and sometimes it's an orthopaedic surgeon, depending on the area and who manages that problem in that region. Um, but 
uh, a rheumatologist isn't specifically able to help with that type of problem. So sometimes we'll pass them on to uh, other colleagues to see if they can uh, help them manage their symptoms. Uh, but sometimes if it's an autoimmune type problem, then yes, they would usually stay under a rheumatologist. There are probably exceptions to that. But yes, if it's a secondary cause because of autoimmune problems, then uh, they'd stay in our clinics. Yes, that makes sense. And do the therapies departments get involved as well? People like physiotherapists and occupational therapists? They, they probably have a slightly smaller role in Raynaud's than they might do in some of the other conditions we look after, but um, certainly they have a kind of parallel role for some of them. Um, and certainly if patients have got Raynaud's as part of an autoimmune condition, they'll quite often have other hand function needs where they need to see the, the occupational therapist. Um, and it might be that as part of that condition as well, they also have fatigue that the occupational therapists help them manage. And physio can also often help with hand function as well, if, if that's something that they're experiencing. Okay. So just linking back to something you were talking about earlier on, is the cause or symptom process the same regardless whether it's primary or secondary Raynaud's? That's an interesting question, actually, because um, it, it's not. Um, so if, for example, you've got the primary Raynaud's, then the process is a kind of a hypersensitivity to cold, which means that if you have cold exposure, the blood vessels clamp down and you get less blood flow, which gives you the attack. If I were to take a biopsy of the blood vessels, which I would never do, but mm. if I did, they would look normal under the microscope. If you have a patient with secondary Raynaud's and that's to do with a inflammatory connective tissue disease or something like that, then quite often there's actually a change to the blood vessel itself. And so you do have the hypersensitivity bit where you go out in cold and, and you get the, the um, contraction of the blood vessel and they clamp down. But in addition to that, actually the blood vessel itself looks abnormal and has thickened. And so actually, even when it's not cold, the blood vessel is smaller and you've got less blood flow going through it. That's not true of all connective tissue diseases, but for, certainly for some of them, there's more to it than just hypersensitivity. That said, we still call it Raynaud's across the board. So the, the actual um, presence of those symptoms is still referred to by the same name, regardless of what is causing it. Right. So in summary, are there any other causes of Raynaud's? There are lots of causes of Raynaud's actually. Uh, we've talked about connective tissue diseases already and those are sort of conditions which I talk about a lot as a rheumatologist but there are other problems as well I won't go through an extensive list because there's there's quite a few different names I think that could be confusing but if we if we sort of think think about them in groups there are problems that can relate to the blood where people make extra proteins in their blood and that can cause them to have Raynaud's like symptoms mm. it's not technically the same a primary problem as primary Raynaud's, but it, it's the same sort of symptoms that people then experience. You can have hormone-related problems, particularly things like thyroid disease. If you have an underactive thyroid, that can um, encourage people to have Raynaud's symptoms. And then we can think about conditions which kind of compress or pinch on the nerves in the blood vessels at different parts of the arm. And that can be caused by thoracic outlet syndrome where it's pinching near the shoulder or carpal tunnel syndrome where it's pinching near the wrist. And then there's other things that happen in the environment as well that can trigger Raynaud's or Raynaud's-like symptoms. Lots of people might have heard of hand-arm vibration syndrome, which is typically when people have been using lots of vibration tools, perhaps as part of their job. People can also have medications that can cause uh, Raynaud's symptoms. 
So it's always worth looking at medications and reviewing those, see if any of them could be switched or changed. And then there's things like smoking and recreational drugs can, that can also trigger Raynaud's symptoms as well. There's quite a variety of things there that could be could be influencing attacks, I guess. Absolutely. So it's quite it's quite broad. And when you're thinking about what when someone presents with Raynaud's for the first time, um, it's important to think about all of those causes and and not just go straight to the the idea of this is Raynaud's on its own. Mm. Could there be any other kind of hormonal influences that affect people? Absolutely. So interestingly, um, there is some data to suggest that women going through different parts of their menstrual cycle might influence how they experience their Raynaud's. And so there might be different parts of their cycle where they actually feel that they have more symptoms, even if the, the sort of cold exposure they're having is the same as other parts of the month. Well, that's interesting. Our hormones have a lot to answer for, don't they, sometimes? They do. It could be quite confusing, but I think it's good to have something like this, a podcast where people can re-listen to those bits to try and understand where they sit within the um, whole kind of range. I think it's interesting. I mean, it's it's a complex condition. It's what can be, can't it? It's a more complex condition than you think, than just the fingertips going white. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Vicky. There's a lot of information in there that I hope people will find interesting and maybe help clarify for them where they're sitting within the primary and secondary Raynaud's diagnoses. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about medications and treatments and the ways that things are managed within a clinic setting, aren't we? Yeah, great. Thanks very much, Mel. Thanks, Vicky. Huge thanks to Vicky for joining us today and talking us through the differences between primary Raynaud's and secondary Raynaud's. We hope that that's helped make things clear and understandable for you. Please come back and join us for episode two, where Vicky and I are going to talk through the kinds of medications and treatments that can be used to support people with primary Raynaud's and secondary Raynaud's. BIRD are committed to helping patients increase knowledge about rheumatic conditions because we know this can have a really positive impact on living with them. We also have a great focus on enabling people to get involved in rheumatology research to help make sure that new medications and treatments meet the needs of patients. We couldn't do any of this without the help of our volunteers and the support of our donors and sponsors, all of whom we are immensely grateful to. You can sign up to be notified about all our podcasts and our patient engagement research opportunities by joining our mailing list. Just send an email to admin at birdbath.org.uk. The address and links are in the show notes. Mm -hmm.